right. Those of you who chuckled with me, chuckled because last week I couldn't get it working. And I chuckled because it beeped at me, which means I left the ringer on, which means it could have been one of those moments that it was not, and we'll move on. We are in Mark chapter 15 tonight, in chapter 16. We're going to be reading this evening about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, a fitting text for this weekend in which much of the Christian community throughout the world uh, has set apart and celebrates the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus particularly, though we do that Sunday by Sunday together. And so we are also coming to the end of our study of the Gospel of Mark. I should perhaps say that we will not be reading verses 9 through uh, the following. Uh, Those of you with an NIV or an ESV translation will see a note there though others perhaps with the King James won't, that those verses are not in the very earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, so they are in dispute as to whether they are uh, truly part of the Word of God. And so we will finish our text at where we know, without doubt, it finishes at verse 8. As we consider the life, burial, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. From Mark chapter 15. I'll begin at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man 
sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let me invite you to pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that your word would bring joy to our heart and light to our eyes and life to our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Life doesn't work right. Decay and frustrations and irritations abound. Melinda and I have been prepping our house so that we can sell it and live among you here in this community. We're thrilled about that. We've been painting things and fixing some of the small things. You know how it is when you're trying to get the most you can from your home. And then uh, just last month in a cold snap in winter... I was taking wood off the front porch and I I just turned with my arms to go into the home to stoke the fire and crushed, just absolutely crushed the doorbell. After 10 years of doing that, that's the day. And the same day or at least the week as I recall, I was wearing these cargo pants that had little pleats down the, the pocket that came down near the knee and I was striding past one of the kitchen cabinets and the pleat hooked the the knob on the cabinet and I didn't know it and as I walked forward in my momentum I literally ripped from top to bottom the cabinet frame right off the cabinet door I don't know the first thing about repairing it I know these are very small irritations but small examples of course Life doesn't work right. Far worse are the relational disruptions we have in this life. When life itself falls apart. When people we love are taken away from us. Such as in death. Which is an intrusion in the way things ought to be. It's not natural. It's not good. It's the last enemy the Bible describes, and Jesus was not immune. He faced death and burial for us. Jesus knows it's not good. You remember that he wept at the graveside of his own dear friend Lazarus. And some of you, even in this last year, some of our congregation have wept as well, walking that same path in our own families and among our friends. The world is not how God made it originally. You surely understand that this can't be how it ought to be. Surely you wish for unbroken relationships with those you love. That instinct is right. And Good Friday through Easter Sunday is a reminder to us that things are not how they ought to be. 
But things are better than we think. Both. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ is risen from the dead. He is alive forevermore. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, These are the matters of first importance. The God-man on a cross and in a tomb and alive forevermore. There is help for us then in what Jesus experienced as we face our own lives and death. And so I want you to think about this passage with me tonight. The, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Those three things. And I, I want you to see it through the eyes of the witnesses to these events that Mark highlights for us in naming name after name of people who saw these things. And so I want you to think about in the first place, I want you to think about the death of Jesus. Jesus died well. This is what the the centurion says to us about the death of Jesus. Here he is. He's a man who has uh, great experience with suffering and death. He has undoubtedly inflicted it upon others. He commands a hundred Roman soldiers. He's on the crucifixion detail charged with standing in front of the man to guard his followers from trying to steal him away alive. He's seen a lot of violence in his life. He had perhaps either either participated in himself or certainly at the very least allowed the men underneath him to be part of that crowd of military men who mock the Lord Jesus who spat in his face, who beat him. Perhaps this is the man, we don't know, who beat Jesus about the face with that reed that would have caused like hundreds of cuts on his lips and nose and eyes, like, like paper cuts. Perhaps this is the man who played the, uh, uh, placed the, the crown of thorns and pressed those needles into his head. Perhaps this is the man who flogged him on the back and ripped him open. We don't know. Maybe he oversaw the man who spiked the nails into his hands and feet. Maybe this is the man who, at the end, the other Gospels will tell us, shoved a spear into the side of Jesus. It says that when this man, this centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last. This man says, truly, Jesus was the Son of God. The other gospel writers will say, he also said, truly this was a righteous man, an innocent man. You see what this this centurion is testifying to? He's saying, Jesus, just as he lived well, so he died well. This man saw no rant, no rage, no revenge, no vindictiveness. Jesus didn't spit back insult upon those who insulted him. Jesus didn't curse the heavens for the pain of his crucifixion. No, something about the way that Jesus died convinced this man, a non-Jewish Roman soldier, That Jesus was something other than mere 
man. This is a big deal in the gospel of Mark that he says, surely this man was the son of God. Because as you may remember, back at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And the first person to identify Jesus as the son of God in that language is this man at the end of the life of Jesus. He's the first to certify that Jesus has died and he's the first Gentile to proclaim Christ's deity. You need to see that. This will help you. Jesus didn't just die well. Jesus lived well. He did both. And he did it for you. He's innocent. He's spotless. He's sinless. He's undeserving of this death, which he dies in our place. He dies the death that we deserve. It's called the great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. He died our death for sin. He lived our life for righteousness. And in him you can be confident before God that you are pardoned and that you stand right with God. 100% innocent, spotless, and righteous before God the Father. By the life and death of Jesus. That is so helpful. And friends, as you and I grow older, and I know some of you don't feel like you're growing any older at all. Some of us are. We have aging parents. I hope that you have the godly ambition to die well. Christians used to talk like that was their great hope. They want to die well. May the Lord make it so. But I want to say this to you. What if we don't? What if you as a believer in Jesus end up with an infirm mind? Or through weakness and fear in the face of pain, don't do it well. There is comfort for you here in the death of Jesus. Jesus went ahead of you in this experience and he did it right so that even should you fail in your last moments, God will welcome you into glory. You can fail and fail again in this life and God will welcome you in glory because Jesus lived and died well. That's what the centurion says to you. The second thing I want you to see is this. It's about the burial. We learn here that not only did Jesus die well, Jesus really died. He really died. The normal human kind of death. You see this through the eyes of Joseph. At least I want to highlight him particularly, though the women are there. We'll get to them later. Jesus experienced what we call normal human death. There's nothing normal or natural about it. But what is it? There's no mystery to it. Friends and and children, if you're wondering what is death, death is the separation of the soul from the body. It is the departing of the soul from the body. You have a soul which will never Die, but the body becomes lifeless in that sense. And here Jesus is experiencing that. 
His body is hanging on the tree and his soul has gone to be with the Father. It says here that uh, if you'll look at uh, the text at verse 42, it was when evening had come on the day of preparation. In other words, Friday evening has come. Saturday is going to be the Sabbath. And Joseph of Arimathea needs to take him down. Somebody needs to take the body off the cross. Why? Well, the Old Testament commanded it. In Deuteronomy 21-23, it says there was a law that a dead body should not be left on a tree overnight. And the evening is, the, the Sabbath is fast approaching. In the Hebrew way of looking at things, there are actually two evenings. One begins at three and the other begins at six. Interestingly, the place you see that in the Bible, that will make sense as you read the different gospel accounts about when all the events happen. Evening, is, evening has come, that's three o'clock. But the evening, that's 6 o'clock, and the Sabbath has not yet arrived. It's the twilight time for them. Interestingly, the place you see that is Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, in the instructions about when to kill the Passover lamb. God commands the Israelites in, in the celebration of the Passover that they're to kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, and the avenging angel will spare that family that is underneath the blood. And God says that you should... You should kill that lamb. The ESV reads at twilight, but you'll see, even see a note at the bottom of your Bible probably, that it says between the two evenings, between three and six. That is when Jesus himself died. Our Passover lamb is killed between the evenings. And so, uh, though we don't know the precise uh, minute, sometime after three, Jesus has died. And yet before six, his body needs to be off the tree. Because Sabbath will have arrived. And so, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who himself is looking for the kingdom of God, takes courage and goes to Pilate and he asks for the body and he buries the body. What about this man, Joseph? What did he see? Joseph was a rich man, the other gospels will tell us. And he's a distinguished prominent member of the ruling council of the Jews. In other words, he's a man who sits, as it were, on their supreme court of governance over the whole nation. He's one of 71 men. And he's not just a man among 70. He's a prominent, distinguished, influential, and affluent man. He's a big deal in Israel. And Luke tells us, Chapter 23, verse 51, that he had actually not consented to the death of Jesus during his trials. And that he had secretly been a disciple of Jesus, though for fear of the Jews, he had not been open about his discipleship and affection. But now, with the body on the tree, Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for that body. And we know that Pilate turns to the centurion and says, well, is he dead? Is he really dead? I can't believe he's really dead this quickly. Suffocation takes a long time in crucifixion normally. Jesus had died very rapidly. But the centurion affirms to his boss, the governor, that yes, in fact, he's really, really dead. There is no mistake here. He gets government certification that he had really died. And then he's buried. We'll come back to why that's important in just a moment. But so here he is, Joseph. And we know from 
John and other places that he actually also has a friend named Nicodemus, also a teacher among the Jews, who together they, they take the body of Jesus off the cross. And they undoubtedly washed him and cleaned his body. And they wrap him in linen bandages which Joseph brings. And Nicodemus brings the spices weighing some 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And they mix all this together with the wrap. And they wrap it around the body of our Lord. And because it's getting late, so it's nearing 6 o'clock. And they can't do any work after that. They lay him in the tomb and they roll the stone Over the entrance. Jesus really died. And he was buried for three days. That's the way that we speak of the 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 burial of Jesus. Why do we do that? If he dies Friday night at approximately three something, is laid in a tomb before six, and resurrection morning happens at daylight. Why do we say three days in the tomb? Well, that's because, though that's only roughly 36 hours, that's because the Jews were inclusive in the way that they counted days. And so they counted Friday, whatever portion thereof was left. They counted Saturday, which was a full day. And they counted Sunday because he rose on Sunday. That's where you get your three days buried. Joseph here places him in the tomb. And Joseph was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. He had looked around at his, his uh, neighbors, his society, and he knew things weren't what they were supposed to be. And he longed for the kingdom of Christ to come, the Messiah to come. And he prayed, your kingdom come, O Lord. Bring the Messiah. I'm in the promised land, but it's not heaven on earth. Bring it. This is the kind of man he was. And so he buries Jesus. Now, how does that help us? Let me suggest two ways. It helps us in life and it helps us in death. How does it help us in death? Well, it says that we should have no fear in death. Jesus has been in the grave ahead of us. And he has released its terror. He has removed the sting of death. And there can be no fear for the Christ, there need not be fear for the one who believes in Jesus. Because Jesus has made death but the portal through which you enter heavenly bliss. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Your body is going to remain on this cross. Your soul is going to leave and be with me in bliss is what Jesus says to him. This is why Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is why in Philippians, he can look forward to his death and say, I desire to depart, to die, and to be with Christ, which is far better than living in this life in which I'm in a prison and suffering. And yet he'll say, but I know that the Lord's going to keep me around for your benefit. But I'd rather be with Jesus. Because that's what happens when I die. This can help you, friends. But it also can help you in life to not have fear. Look at the example of Joseph here. Look at the courage he shows. Real courage. Interesting. To associate himself with Jesus when Jesus is already dead and can no longer do anything for him in an earthly way. There's no benefit to coming out as a disciple of Jesus. Now he's just been condemned by the Israelites who hate him. 
And now you stand up and say, yeah, I follow him. I like him. And he's just been killed by the Romans for treason. Yeah, I, I identify with him. I love that man. There's nothing in it for Joseph here. Everything is risked. Everything could be lost. His wealth, his reputation, friendships, even potentially life itself. Where did he get that courage to stand and announce his affection for Jesus? Well, maybe he said to himself, what's the loss of everything when God himself gave up everything for me? Maybe he knew what the Apostle Paul would one day say when he says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. It gave him great courage to stand with Jesus, who had given all for him. And so you see the burial of Jesus through the eyes of Joseph. And you see that not only did Jesus die well, Jesus really died. And finally, I want you to see this. Death couldn't keep him. He rose from the dead. On the morning after the Sabbath, some women come to finish the job of anointing him, but when they arrive, the stone is moved and the tomb is empty. They they knew that in the rush of Friday night, not everything had been done as thoroughly as was needed. And early on Sunday morning, on Saturday night, actually, according to us, after 6 o'clock when the next day came and the Sabbath was over, they purchased their supplies. Early on Sunday, they come to the tomb to, to finish the job of perfuming the body of our Lord. And they discover that the tomb is empty. Now, who are these women? I want you to think about this for a moment. Mark goes out of his way to highlight these witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The first he mentions is Mary Magdalene. And then he mentions Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome and other women. Mary Magdalene here, this is the first time in Mark's narrative of the story of Jesus that she appears. At the death, burial, and resurrection. First time in his gospel. Though we know from other gospel accounts, uh, that, uh, including Luke 8, that Jesus had delivered her from demon possession. We don't know what her life had been like before that, how miserable she had been. But we, knew, we do know that the Savior had encountered her, delivered her, and afterwards she never left him. She loved him. And then there's Mary, the mother of two boys. That may be Jesus' own mother. Why do I say that? Because in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we are told that the mother of Jesus had two sons named James and Joseph, other, other children, undoubtedly with her husband Joseph. They are, however, very popular names for boys in that day, and Mary, as you know, is a popular name uh, at that time as well, multiple Marys here. And so it's possible that this isn't the mother. Of Jesus, I think it is, but then I don't know why he didn't just say it that way. 
James here is called the younger, probably distinguish him from that James you know with his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. What we do know about this Mary is that she was at Golgotha when he died, or we should say the Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, that she was there when he died, and Jesus gave her to the care of the apostle John, his disciple. And then there's a third woman here, Salome, the most mysterious of the three in some ways, not to be confused with the daughter uh, of uh, Herod's wife who danced for him and got John the Baptist's head on a platter, uh, though she also may have been named this name. But here she's identified as the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and other gospel tells, her, tells us she, she may in fact be the aunt of our Lord Jesus and the sister of Mary. Now, I go at great length to describe these women because Mark does. He even notes that in Galilee, these women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs, and that many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, and they were there also. You get here a glimpse at the death, burial, and resurrection. You get a glimpse of the support structure of our Lord Jesus that that occurred throughout his earthly ministry. People who prepared food for he and his disciples, who gathered water from the wells, who cleaned up, who served Jesus and his apostles, but also who undoubtedly served him in other ways, like speaking to Men and women and children who came up shyly asking questions but were afraid, too afraid to speak to Jesus himself. They were regular members of the group that followed and funded the ministry of our Lord Jesus. They were disciples from first to last. That is highlighted for you here because the Bible wants you to know how important women are in the kingdom of God and how Jesus values their discipleship. But what they find is an empty tomb. They find an empty tomb. We ought to pause and ask, well, what happened to the body? Some say Jesus didn't die. He just fainted on the cross. He revived in the tomb and then walked away. It's called the swoon theory. It's absurd on its face. Rarely does anyone believe it these days. Jesus never could have survived the torture and execution of the cross And Roman law laid a penalty on any man who let a capital prisoner escape. Well, it it laid on him uh, the death penalty. So no centurion or otherwise would have allowed him off that cross alive. Pilate had him checked to see that he was really dead. And imagine the absurdity had Jesus only gone into some kind of coma, been taken off the cross, laid in the grave. Three days later, he comes out covered in all this stuff with the wounds oozing underneath him and yet he convinces everybody he's risen as the victorious lord and conqueror over death and that he is their everlasting king who reigns and rules forever i mean it's just laughable on its face no he he really died but then some people would say well well the tomb is empty because well he may have died but, but somebody moved the body but then who moved the body the jewish authorities the roman authorities Uh, The last thing I wanted was some messianic movement on their hands, giving any encouragement to his followers to persist in his teachings. The Romans set a guard, uh, as we know the other Gospels say, of 60 soldiers, just so no one could steal the body. 
And who, who would have done it if not them? The, the disciples? Well, then the disciples stole the body had they somehow drugged and made the soldiers fall asleep and be derelict in their duty and somehow gotten that stone moved back and, and taken the body away. And then they came out and they lied to everybody and said Jesus was alive when they knew he was dead. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is this. Who would die for a lie like that? You, you know how you lie. You lie to your own advantage. This is why people lie. If, if things aren't going well, I'll speak a lie to get favor, to twist it my way, to ease the pressure. You don't lie to get yourself in more trouble on purpose. And yet we know that the early disciples were, were uh, beaten, tortured, exiled. Some were killed. Most were killed. So what happened to the body of Jesus? Well, some people would say, well, nothing. It was in the tomb. But the women so longed for him to be resurrected that they saw what they wanted. They saw what wasn't really there. In other words, he was there and they thought the tomb was empty. But you have to understand, these women, as the passage portrays them, weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead, though he had told them at least three times in the Gospel of Mark that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. They're there on the third day, and they are not looking to see his resurrection. They are there to add more spices to his burial wraps. Now, their, their love for Jesus was strong, but their belief in Jesus that he would rise from the dead as he said was weak they're absolutely astonished at what the angel tells them so nobody's expecting the resurrection I just want you to see that and Mark didn't make it all up the Luke and Matthew and John and Paul and Peter the other disciples and apostles they all tell you this and they all tell you it was the women who were the first ones to proclaim the resurrection. Now, if you were trying to make a story up and convince others to follow that story, in that day, you never would have made the women the first witnesses of the resurrection. Their testimony was considered so low in the courts of their day that it was inadmissible. They had no legal right to serve as witnesses in court, and yet God makes them the very ones who are the first witnesses. This is how God honors women. This is how these women loved him. And so they have come to the tomb and entering the tomb, they find it to be empty except a young man is there in, in, a, in a white robe. And based on the other gospels, we believe this is an angel. We know that angels often in the Bible appear as people and the angel speaks to them that death could not keep him and if you're skeptical tonight or you have skeptical friends skeptical friends about the resurrection i want you to i want you to think about it this way you should want for this to be true even if you have a hard time believing it a dead savior can't help anybody but a living savior can you know how it is with criminals. 
after they do their time in jail and fully satisfy their sentence, the law has no claim on them and they walk out free. And that is what the empty tomb means, that Jesus, who came to pay the penalty for sins, did it fully and he walked out free. But they don't understand at first. They don't get it. Verse 8, they're astonished, they're confused, they're fearful. Listen, if you have a hard time with the idea of the resurrection, you aren't the only one. These women had a hard time with it. Their initial reaction isn't joy, it's fear. They're confused. They're confused. How should we respond to the resurrection of Jesus? I want to say to you this. If you're not sure how you're supposed to respond to the resurrection of Jesus, you're in good company. They responded in fear, and yet the Bible wants them to respond in joy, joy which they will soon experience. But how does any of this help us? Two things real quickly and finally. Um, how should we respond to the resurrection? What should we, how do we benefit by it in the first place? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And you see it here in the text with this statement that they should go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going to meet with them. Now you remember who Peter is. Peter is the one who to his face denied him three times in his greatest hour of need. And the rest of the disciples had abandoned him before that. And this angel doesn't say, you go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that if they grovel, Jesus might, might welcome them back. He might forgive them. No, the angel says, you go tell the disciples and Peter, Jesus longs to be with them. He longs to reconcile them to himself. He wants to meet with them and love them and be gracious to them and forgive them. That's the note here, friends, to the failure Peter, who denied Jesus in his darkest hour, Jesus says, I want to be with you. But then there's a note of hope. And this is the last thing. There's a note of hope here. Johnny Erickson Tata, do you know that name? She had an accident when she was 17 years old and ended up having dived into a shallow place in the Chesapeake. She became paralyzed from the neck down and for the last 45 years has lived in a wheelchair being served wholly by others. She's, she's lived a remarkable life. She's written over 45 books, recorded multiple music albums. She makes art by holding a, a paintbrush with her teeth and, and uh, paints and sells the artwork, and it's beautiful. She often speaks about the depression that she had in the early years and later in the midst of this difficulty and trial. And she speaks of the hope that she finds in the gospel. She says this, I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, I will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling, can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is a spinal cord injured person like me? Can you imagine? That's the hope that we friends we have friends. The grave couldn't hold Jesus. The grave won't 
hold us who believe in Jesus, suffering will not have the last word for all who believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you. Jesus, we exalt you. We pray that you would cause our hearts to find great benefit in you. And that you'd bring glory to yourself through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response. Uh, Stanzas 1, 2, and 4 of Jesus lives and so shall I. And we'll hold the fifth stanza for after the Lord's Supper.